You know, I think you guys probably already know that I love border collies and Australian shepherds, pretty much any of the herding dogs. I'm, I'm a big fan of, that's like the last three dogs I think we've owned have all fit into that category. Um, I mean, why a city boy has one, that's a different question altogether because they don't always make the best house pets. But uh, if you want to see something truly enjoyable, go on YouTube, not now, but at some point, go on YouTube and just like search for videos of young border collie puppies being brought out to the flock of sheep for the first time. Have you ever seen any of those? How many have seen that at all? It's crazy. I mean, like, like they immediately, like a light bulb turns on and they go running. Now, they're not trained yet to know exactly what to do, but you, they're working the sheep. There they are, like six weeks old, eight weeks old. They're going after these sheep that are massively, you know, much larger than them. And if you could see into their internal dialogue, because I'm sure these dogs have internal dialogue, but if you could read their heart... I'm sure that it must say something like, oh, so this is it. So this is who I am. So this is what it's all about. It's just like, boom, they know that. It's just, it's part of their instinct. It's, it's, it's on, you know, an animal intuitional level. And human beings experience similar things. We're not as instinctive as animals, obviously. We do more, you know, thinking through and processing that way. And at the same time, there are those moments where something just, it's like that same kind of light switch moment, you know, the kind I'm talking about. He takes like a city boy that's never been on the farm, and you bring him out, and he gets out into the field, and it's been freshly tilled, and, and, and the smell of the earth, and the feel of that, all at once, it's like, whoa, what just happened? Like there's some memory of something he's never done that's just that just comes on, or, or you go to the ocean for the first time. I hope all of you have at least been to the ocean once, but you go to the ocean, you're, you're like a Kansas kid, and you get to the ocean, and you stand there, and you're not like, oh, what's this funny, weird thing? No, it's like, whoa, and you hear, you know, the breakers, and the smell hits your nose, you're, you're, the feeling of the sand, the water lapping up, the seagulls and all that, and it's just almost like, whoa, I've been here before. And it's not that you had a past life or anything like that. Um, you know, Carl Jung, I don't usually quote Carl Jung. Um, <laughs> but, but he came up with this one concept that I think has merit. He called it the, uh, the collective unconscious. And what he was saying was, um, is, that, is that somewhere in us, and I don't know if he tried to figure out how that came about, but, but something on a very deep-rooted level hangs on each new baby that's born that that belongs to its past to its ancestry that there's something there imprinted in us that just comes out and one of those things that's been imprinted upon us very strongly is the fall you know that you know that old uh, expression well that's going to leave a mark um that's what adam should have said right after you that's going to leave a mark and it did it just stuck to us but then with that, you have the garden itself as, as this collective memory. I'm, I'm convinced that we as human beings have sort of that collective unconscious memory of the garden. And, and so I believe that all mankind expected the coming of Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sense of that because at first you're like, what? 
And if you're here, you know, as a guest and you haven't been here for the other two sermons, uh, our Advent series was a little short uh, because I had to finish Colossians. But the three sermons that we've preached have kind of come at the question of the whole expectation of Jesus at Advent, the arrival of Christ. Did we expect it? We, well, we must have because the hymn says so. And hymns can't be wrong, can they? Come thou long expected Jesus. Come thou long expected. Well, who expected him? We looked at the, the pagans, the Gentiles, the first week. Last week, we looked at the Jewish people. And this question we're just gonna, to, that we're asking ourselves today is just mankind in general. Did mankind have a built-in, latent expectation of Jesus? And my answer to that is yes. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to give you some supports for that. First of all, we know that we were meant for eternity. Every human being that is born, deep down, knows that we were meant for eternity. Now, if the biblical story makes that clear, that death was not part of the original equation. And then Adam falls into sin. Look what it says in Genesis 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. When, when Adam and Eve partook of that, of that uh, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, evil, death was the result of that. It didn't mean that they were going to die literally physically on the day that they ate, but from that day forward, death entered into the equation where death did not belong. Yeah? Uh, look what it says in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your, uh, of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death had been a foreign concept to us. Now, if the Bible is telling us the truth, and I'm going to say yes, the Bible is telling us the truth. If the Bible is telling us the truth, then it would seem absolutely natural that we would carry around with us that internal imprint upon our hearts and souls that we are eternal. Like it would just be, it would be built in if the Bible is telling us the truth. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, I love this, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. Now that then makes sense biblically. It, it's almost like a, a testable hypothesis to say, well, if the scripture is accurate, then what should follow from, you know, that's always, you know, like if they're trying to prove Einstein's theory of relativity or whatever, they, they say, okay, here's what it says. Now, what should be the implication? What should we see in the real world? What we should see that all human beings in some sense do carry this, this internal sense of, uh, uh, of eternity or the longing for that. But flip it the other way. What if atheists are correct? What would be the testable hypothesis for the atheist if everything that we know is totally the product of random chance? What if everything just happened for no good reason? It just, it just you know, everything just kind of came together. Boom, the universe exploded into existence out of nothing. You know, one of those just really random things. And 
Randomly, these, these solar systems formed within galaxies that were forming, and randomly some, some non-organic material got together in just such a way as to create organic material, which doesn't happen in a laboratory, but you can apparently do it by chance. And then it all comes together, and then we start evolving. You get the simple, you know, irreducibly complex cell that uh, just, you know, keeps, keeps evolving so right now, according to that, you are, you are on the shoulders of millions of generations of, of organisms. Millions and millions and millions of, you know, when you think about simple cells and how many times that would have, it's like incalculable. And, and according to evolution, every single one of those organisms died. Every single last one of them. None of them was eternal. Millions and millions of generations. That's what you're, yeah, so it, it, Test the hypothesis. If that were true, what would we have internalized? We would have internalized death. That's all we would, you know, well, you, you live and you die, you know. Life's hard, then you die. We used to say that. Um, you know, that would, that would be what is produced in us, but that's not what's there. Even atheists rage against God. I've, I just the other day, I can't remember which one it was because there's so many of them out there, uh, was just raging like, oh, you know, you believe in a God that would just create a universe like this and we just live these short lives and we die. It's like, well, what are you complaining about? <laughs> Honestly, what you, I mean, where, where did you get that from? What, what, by what, if, if you're true, if what you believe about the universe is true, then you're getting exactly what you should expect. So where did that idea come from? We know that we were meant for meaning. We know we were meant for meaning. I'm using meaning as kind of the catch-all term. I couldn't think of a better one. Um, to express the idea of that which is opposite to futility. Think about life before the fall. Before the fall, God made Adam and he made him for meaning. He made him for purpose. He didn't just create him and put him in the garden and say, well, I've got no real plan for you here, Adam. Just twiddle your thumbs and be idle. And I don't know, I'll bring you a guitar later and you can become a guitar player. Um, or whatever the case might be. He didn't, he didn't say that to him, did he? He put him in the garden and he gave him the garden to, uh, to keep. It says the Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he had meaning, he had purpose, he had duty, all of those things. Then Adam goes on and names all the animals. So Adam was, if, if you're into science, which I'm sure some of you are, uh, that's a taxonomy right there, isn't it? Isn't that what biologists do? They name everything, and you know, kingdom and phylum, and I used to know that, I don't anymore. But you know, you know, you can tick off that list. So he's naming all the animals. He is busy, he's engaged in work. That's rewarding, but it does, it's not by the sweat of the face of his brow. But then look what happens at the curse. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, or your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you, you shall return. Now, I know you're aware of this story. You've heard it many, many times. But I, what I want you to see right now is, is the introduction of futility. Everything before that had had purpose and meaning, and then futility comes into the equation. Paul says this in Romans. He says, for the creation 
was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Man brought futility into the equation. It wasn't supposed to be there. Now, why do we live with, it, with this sense of that crushing idea of futility and, and vanity? And why, why do we strive against that? Why do we, you know, why, why do we think there should be meaning? Why do we feel like there should be purpose? Why do we think that things should, should have some ultimate end? I think most men live lives in the pursuit of something like that, some idea of my, that my life would have purpose, that I would have accomplished something, that something, you know, some ultimate answer for why I exist would finally come out of the whole thing. And, and I think a lot of men don't reach that. They don't come to the point where they're fully satisfied. They look back with regret. They don't feel like they've reached their potential or whatever it might be. Or, in few cases, you know, there's a few people that reach the pinnacle of their career. I was just listening to an actor the other day. Uh, He's the guy that plays Reacher, if you've ever seen that. Big, I mean, like everything going for him. Tall, good-looking, young all this success in Hollywood, and he was saying, oh, man, they don't tell you, but you get to that point, you realize there's nothing, there's nothing behind it all. <laughs> it's like, really, you didn't, you didn't see that one coming? But <laughs> it's like you reach the pinnacle, and you look down, and you go, what was it all for? I mean, he fell into depression because there was, he couldn't answer the question, what was it all for? And it seems like that's what, what we deal with. Why aren't we okay with that? Why, what makes us strive for, for meaning if by our own materialistic notions, life is just temporary to begin with and never has been anything but temporary? Why, if the universe is random and chaotic and full of Murphy's Law and the law of entropy, you know, why bristle at futility? It would just, it'd be baked in. It would be your factory setting from, from, from your creation onward, except you wouldn't use the word creation, Right? You'd say from, from your evolutionary moment onward, from the time life begins with you, yeah, it, it's just there. I occasionally listen to an atheist comedian by the name of Ricky Gervais. How many know who I'm talking about there? Very, very atheistic. Uh, I even had something pop up on my, my phone this morning. about he, he says that Americans don't like atheists. I guess he was complaining about us. Really? Well, you don't... You, you, you expect to be liked? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, he's very snarky. He re, just routinely ridicules the idea of God and, and, and of Christians. But it's interesting to me occasionally to tune into one of his shows just, just to kind of see where he's at, to kind of understand his mindset. Currently, he's got a TV show where he's lost his wife and, and, and he's, he's demoralized from that. And the Really, the whole point of the show seems to be, you know, life is meaningless. What's it all about? What does it matter? You can just hear Ricky Gervais saying, saying that sort of thing. And I want to tell him, Ricky, you're, you're raging against the futility of life when you embrace the idea that the whole universe is futile. Like, why, why rage against that? Where did you get the idea that there should be something more? And we know the answer to that. As Christians, we know the answer. We know the answer is that our hearts are resonating with ancient truths. 
that have been laid in from the foundation of the world. That's why we, say, you know, we have eternity in our heart. We have that sense that life has meaning. But Ricky should expect it to all be pointless. So to Ricky, I'd like to say, you know, hey, there's a solution for this. But you're not going to like it. <laughs> but there is. There is, a, there is an answer to that kind of question. Thirdly, we know we were meant for him. When God made mankind, he made us in his image, male and female. He created them according to his image. And theologians go around. You've probably heard various explanations, maybe some good ones, maybe some ones that you kind of went, huh, um, as to what the image of God is. Is it our intelligence? Is it our ability to think about future things? Is it uh, self-awareness? Language. Some people think it's the use of language, other things of that nature. But I tell you what, although I'm sure many of those things together combine to, to make up what is the image of God in man, the one thing that absolutely is a non-negotiable, it has to be in there, and that is a spiritual connection to God himself, the ability to be in relationship to him. We see this in the fact that Man walked with God in the garden in perfect fellowship. We see this also in the negative when Adam sins. Immediately there is a break in the connection to God. And it's on Adam's part to begin with. He gets away because he sinned and he hides himself from God. They sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. But he he doesn't want to go near God because of his sin. And then, of course, you know, Sin comes into the world, it changes, it mars the, the image of God in man, and we are thrust from the garden. Now, if you're tracking where we've been going, you're thinking, but surely this is not true of the non-believer, the unbeliever. Surely the atheists and all other kinds of unbelievers would be repelled by this notion of a relationship with God. Surely they don't actually want that. Atheists are outspoken about the fact that they don't want that. You know, I, I, every once in a while, I tune into a debate or a portion of a deba- debate between a, you know, a, a pretty capable Christian thinker and an atheist or a panel thereof. And it's interesting when they get to the question of like, what, they'll ask, a, you'll, you'll hear the atheist ask, well, what would convince you of the existence of God? And they, they stumble over that. They go, well, I don't really know. Well, what about if you saw Jesus die on the cross and then three days later you saw him rise up from the dead? Would you believe then? And they will literally say, and I've heard it said, uh, no, I would think I had a brain tumor. Well, so what you're saying is it's not a falsifiable uh, hypothesis at all. You wouldn't accept any, any evidence. And when pushed, a lot of times... People like Christopher Hitchens and others will say, it it wouldn't matter to me, really. You can bring all the evidence you want. Even if I was convinced intellectually, it wouldn't matter to me because I hate him. I I want nothing to do with your God. And then they go on a complete rant about how awful, you know, obviously how awful God is. So it sounds like I'm I'm sort of challenging my own point here. Do human beings know that they were created for a relationship with God is, is that a desire? And I'm still going to say yes against the contrary evidence um, because this has been the testimony of every atheist that's ever become a believer. 
You can go back to Augustine. You can go to C.S. Lewis. I think of somebody like uh, Louis Zamperini, you know, the guy, the, the Olympic hero, war hero, POW. And he fought it. He fought it with everything he had. And then when he comes to it, his, his life is just flooded with power and joy and, and hope. And that's universal. You, there, there's this, you know, they talk about the God-shaped vacuum. I mean, even if, what, what I'm saying is, is that even people that are just shouting and shaking their fist at the God they don't believe in saying, you know, I won't bend the knee, I won't believe in him, you know, and, and nobody can make me do that. The moment that they come to, to Christ, immediately like, whoa, where, I didn't even know I had this vacuum, which is suddenly filled. It's there, they, they, they're in denial. Look at it from another angle, though. Across the globe, there has never been a culture come into existence that has not believed in a god of some sort or multiple gods. The idea of something supernatural beyond themselves, which they have then felt, uh, felt the need to worship. Think about Paul when he got to Athens. Do you remember that? He gets to Athens and there's all these idols and he even sees the inscription, you know, to the unknown god. And he declares this to the Athenians. Then I'm going to I'm going to declare to you this unknown god of yours, uh, which is kind of tricky. But um, but yeah, he's not faulting them for the fact that they were naturally worshiping. He only faults them that they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But that capacity that is that is who we are. Look at the secular world. People need to worship something. Could be Taylor Swift. Could be the Kansas City Chiefs. It's a twofer right there, right? You get a boyfriend, girlfriend, both of them perfectly happy to go there on a Sunday and worship their their idol, right? Right, right there. It's just nicely combined there. Or um, what about aliens? That's another one, right? Everybody's looking for the aliens to come and save us. My wife and I watched uh, or kill us. It's one of the two. Either you kill us or save us. Uh, but we, we were watching, there's a cute little movie called Jules, J-U-L-E-S. Uh, I think it's PG-13. It might be a little, little language. That's the only thing I could say. But, uh, but it's a cute movie. Um, this alien crashes in a guy's backyard. I won't give away the, the more than that. But um, what's interesting um, is that clearly this, this alien starts to take on kind of a godlike role to them. Like, literally, there's a couple scenes where, and it's a rather short alien, so you could say, well, it's because he was short that they had to bend down, but there's several points in, in, the, in the movie where one of them is literally getting on their knees in front of this alien. Where, where does that come from? Why do, why do we have this desire? Why is it that, that we have this need to see something bigger than ourselves? Why do we make such big, horrible gods that we try to worship? There's nothing that can take the place of the one true God, and that is in all of us. Finally, uh, we know we need a true and better Adam. And um, some of you may not know that this is a promise within the scripture, but right at the very beginning of the book, there is a promise of the Messiah. Now, it doesn't come right out and use the term Messiah, but it's awfully close. If you look at Genesis 3.15, this is when God is cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from that moment onward, 
a seed was predicted, the, the seed of the woman, and her seed, which is Christ, is said to then bruise the, the head of the devil who tempted them. The seed of salvation was already planted before we even got out of the garden. Isn't that an amazing thought? And as you track that through, if you go through the book of Genesis and you look for this, where, where, what becomes of that, that theme? Well, you have the godly line of Seth, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you get to chapter 49, the penultimate verse of the book of Genesis, or chapter of Genesis, and there is predicted the line of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, look, which, which pops up later. But Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And that's just, that, that's just one of the ongoing references to the Messiah who will be from the tribe of Judah, a son, um, a son of David. The whole direction of the book from Genesis all the way through and throughout the rest of the New Testament is just priming us for this one who will come, who will deliver his people from all of, all of these things that we've been looking at today, all of these things that, that we just strain against. The, the whole idea of death and, and, and futility and, and, and lacking the proper object of worship, all of those things are answered in that seed. God's plan was to crush Satan's power. And you and I who are in Christ, we have begun to experience that. Now when I say begin, in one sense we have the possession of all of what is meant by that. And yet there is a now and then a not yet. And so, though we are in Christ and in him we have eternal life, we will, we will face death, won't we? Though we are in Christ and we have ultimate meaning and purpose, nary a day goes by, but you think, why did that thing have to break? Or why is my life just spinning in circles? You know, we, we deal with futility. And, and when it comes to worship, we worship the true God and, and we come in uh, on a day like today when, when, when there's you know, many voices being lifted to God in praise and we feel so close and yet there's always that sense that we see from behind a veil, behind a glass dimly. And we, we want, we're still longing for the complete fulfillment of what Christ has done. We're like everyone else around us in, in that sense, but, but yet we have the Savior. We have the one born at Christmas. It answers all of our longings, all of our need. You say, well, that may be so, but does all mankind really long for that? Do they re- are they really searching? Are they really after such a thing? And, and I think the answer is yes, they don't know it, but yeah. What if, a, what if there had never been cure, a cure for any disease? What if the whole history of humanity were that, you know, you have a certain degree of health, then you get sick, and uh, you, just, you just drag that sickness with you everywhere you go the rest of your life until you finally die? Wouldn't we still long for a cure? Wouldn't we still be looking for something to come that would rescue us? And I believe that the world, the Ricky Gervaises and others that are raging against God are they're constantly trumpeting the disease, aren't they? 
They're like, oh, how can there be a God? <laughs> how can there be God when there's death? How can there be God when, you know, when there's no point to anything? Why, how can there be a God if he didn't reveal himself clearly to us? Uh, whatever the case might be. And, and the whole time what they don't hear themselves really saying is that, is that they've got a disease and they desperately, desperately want the cure. And the cure has come. How blessed are we? How, how blessed are you, Christian? No matter what else is going on in your life, and I know hard, hard things go, go on, and we carry so many things, and, and this time of year reminds us sometimes of people we love so much that, that have gone on, but you know, you think about the words of amazing grace, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. We could also say that it is by grace that we first came to ache for what we lost in the garden. The grace of God awakened us to that desperation. Why? Why must there be death? Why must there be futility? Why, 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 why? And, and then by the grace of God, he sent the gospel to you. And somebody preached it to you or spoke it to you. Or you opened up a Bible and, and maybe it was a Gideon Bible. And so the, you had some guides within that and it took you and said, read this, read this. And you did. And, and, but whatever means, God awakened you and you saw the answer. And you came to Christ. Isn't that, I mean, that, that is, that, that's everything. That's everything. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sin release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Christian, your longing heart has been satisfied. That's, that's part of what Advent means. Unbeliever, if, if you are here today, I just ask you to think about this just with me for half a second. If you're an accident of a random, meaningless universe, why do you long for these things that we've talked about? Why do you care? Why do you want the cure so badly? And God's offered that. God has brought that. Behold the seed of woman, Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, who has come into the world and he has bruised the serpent's head. He has defeated the devil. Think about it. Forty days in the wilderness, he took on the devil, and, and he was victorious. And then he comes preaching the gospel, and he heals the sick, and he raises the dead, and he cleanses the leper, and he drives out the demons. Until that day, in another garden, he wrestles. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. He defeats the devil there and he goes to the cross and he brings destruction on, on the, the gates of hell. And on the third day, he rises and he brings justification for those who will trust in him. He's, he's done the work. He's brought the cure. And we just hold them out to you today. If, if, if you see your sin and you repent and you turn to Jesus Christ, you can have all, all of what God has intended all the way back to the garden. Come to him. Receive the one that your heart is desperate to know. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have come and that you brought relief 
to mankind. You, you, you brought victory over the serpent. You brought to us eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that we have received that cure and that we know the joy of it. Even though it's, it's now and not yet, even though there are elements of that that we still will uh, only fully know in glory, we thank you, Lord, for the deposit of the Holy Spirit, for faith that dwells in our hearts. And, Lord, we just pray that that good gospel message would fall on the heart of someone who up till now has not known you. Lord, maybe it's a person that's been just dull in their, in their thoughts, or maybe they've sh- actively shaken their, their fist against you. But I, I pray, Lord, that you would overcome them by, your, by the power of your spirit through the gospel, and that Christ might come to them and be their Savior even now. Even today, Lord, we ask that you would do this for your glory and for your namesake. Amen.